that. For the next couple of months, we're going to focus on being a healthy church. On Sunday nights, this is what we're in. I've been talking to you about this for quite some time. When I talk about being a healthy church, I could focus on a lot of things. But what I'm going to focus on primarily is our relationships to one another in our church. Tonight, we're going to learn what caring for one another looks like, how that makes us a healthy church when we get it right. In future weeks, we'll talk about being humble toward one another, what that looks like. We're going to talk about how to charitably disagree with each other. That is a Christian virtue that a lot of Christians haven't learned, especially in in, in today's world, how to charitably disagree with one another. We're going to talk about how to be how to be a peacemaker in the church. Remember that passage in the Sermon on Mount where Jesus challenged the disciples to be peacemakers, not peace breakers. We don't need any peace breakers. We need peacemakers, and we're going to learn what that looks like. We're going to talk about some real practical tips towards the end of the series on on how to resolve conflict. How, how, How to go about making things right with somebody when there's been a misunderstanding, when there's been an offense. Here's what I've learned in my short time as a pastor that I don't think I could have learned this clearly until I became a lead pastor And it's this, Satan is actively and creatively and subtly trying to destroy our church from the inside out. If he can get us out of sorts on the inside, then he can make us ineffective on the outside. To be clear tonight, I don't think our church is in major disunity. I don't think we're anywhere close to dying. We are, in fact, incredibly healthy in many areas of our ministry. And we're growing. Praise the Lord for that. But over the course of the last year or so, as our church has grown, I've seen a weakness. To be real honest with you, I've seen a weakness rise to the top of the surface. And an area that isn't as healthy as it needs to be. And that weakness involves our dealing with each other. Our inability sometimes to handle offense. Our inability to handle disagreement. Our inability to to deal with diversity among our congregation, our growing congregation. So that's what we're going to deal with for the next couple of months. If you have your Bible tonight, would you turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 as we, we learn about how to properly care for one another in the church. Because listen, that's where healthy relationships begin. They begin when we have a mindset of truly biblically caring for each other. One of the most remarked upon aspects of the early church was the way they cared for one another. All you have to do is is do a study in the New Testament of every time the phrase one another comes up. It's everywhere. One another marked the early church. And I think the purpose of that phrase in scripture is to show the church today what it could look like if we got the one another's right. If we truly cared for one another and prayed for one another and loved one another and served one another and was kind to one another and considerate of one another and forgave one another. If all the members were equally committed to caring for one another in this way, I believe the church would be a very healthy place. The kind of God honoring care I think is outlined for us 
practically in Galatians chapter 6. What I'm going to do is preach the first 10 verses and we're going to start with the last verse of our text because I think it introduces the overall idea of the text and, and, and everything kind of flows out of this thought. Look at verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Caring for one, for one another, according to that verse, means we're looking for ways to do good. For everyone, of course, but especially looking for ways to do good to those within our local church. Our household of faith. Our goodness receptors should be the most alert when we go to church. Of course, we should look for ways to do good to somebody at the grocery store. Look for ways to do good to somebody at work or do good to somebody in that nonprofit we serve. But we are to be particularly sensitive to doing good to those we go to church with. When Paul said that, that we ought to have opportunity, he's speaking to the fact that we ought to be perceptive. We ought to be looking for opportunities to do good for people that we go to church with. Looking for those. In other words, when you care for somebody you go to church with, it won't happen by accident. It requires a sensitivity to the well-being of those around us. You, you can't come to church and be preoccupied with yourself while at the same time looking for opportunities to do good for others. Being inward focused and caring for others do not coexist. Caring for one another, watch here, begins with not making church all about you. It begins with shedding yourself of selfishness, of self-pity, God help us, moodiness, personal stress, independence, and any unhealthy emotion or attitude that you tend to bring to church with you that causes you to be inward focused. When you step into the front doors of your household of faith, hear me, determined to be a caregiver. Put a smile on your face. Be approachable. Stick your hand out to shake somebody else's hand. Ask somebody how their day went. And when they ask you how yours went, be honest, but don't give them an essay of how bad your work life is. Make it clear by your countenance and by your body language that you're looking for opportunities to do good for somebody. And notice Paul says that we ought to do good. Do good. Watch. Caring is not passive. The only way to care is to do something. I never have blessed you because I thought a good thought about you. Because you don't know. I've never blessed you. I, I bless you when I text that good thought or I write that good thought or I say that good thought or I, I do that good deed. So what are some practical ways we can look for opportunities and then do good and care for one another? The text gives us four ways. Look at verse one. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Verse teaches us that you can care for one another, number one, through gentle restoration. It's no secret that you go to church with sinners. 
And sometimes sinners you go to church with get overtaken in a fault. That means they get caught up in a transgression. They fall into a sinful pattern of behavior. That that word overtaken means they're trapped. Uh, Kind of like an animal would be stuck in a trap and can't get unstuck without somebody's help. That's where a brother or a sister in Christ comes in. I know there's some noises going on. Would you just pay close attention to the message tonight? Paul says that, that we which are spiritual should restore such an one. Sometimes a church member gets trapped in sin and needs another church member to help set them free. Paul calls this restoration. That term restore was used to describe the process of putting a bone back into place. Author Tim Keller says a dislocated bone is extremely painful because it is not in its designed natural relationship to the other parts of the body. To put a bone back in place will inevitably inflict pain, but it's a healing pain. It means we are to confront, even when that will be painful, but our confronting must be aiming to prompt a change of life and heart. Church members should be looking for dislocated members of the body. Watch, you're looking for opportunities to do good. So that means when you come to church, you're looking for who's not here. You're looking for who's normally on the other side of the row, but they're not here. They might, they might be sick. What could you do? Check on them. You're looking for somebody in your connection group that might be there, but, but, but you can just tell they're off. You're looking for, for, for folks that, that have strayed and are wayward and they're dislocated members of the body. And then you're going to gently and courageously try to set them back in place. Now, Paul doesn't give us the steps of restoration in this passage. Instead, Paul talks about the restorer. The restorer, he says, should be spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean perfect. It means the restorer should operate in the spirit of the ultimate restorer, which is Jesus Christ. Before I talk about the restorer, let me address the one being restored real quick. If you're the one in need of restoration, and by the way, at some point in your Christian life, you will be in need of restoration. Then you should never demand your restorer be a perfect Christian or somebody you personally approve of. That would be as silly as having a broken bone, going to the ER, but demanding to get a performance report of every nurse and doctor before you allow them to help put your bone back into place. When you have a broken or dislocated bone, you aren't running background checks on the nurses and doctors. You're humbly, you're humbly desperate for someone, anyone who knows what they're doing just to relieve you of this pain. The same is true when you're trapped in sin. You're not resisting the efforts of of spiritual but imperfect Christians to restore you. You're humbly welcoming their intervention in your life. And if you aren't humbly welcoming their intervention in your life, you aren't truly ready to be restored. Now back to the restorer. Being spiritual when you restore somebody means that you'll restore them in a spirit of meekness. That's gentleness. You'll confront and you'll be honest. And you'll be straightforward, but you'll be gentle and loving when you do it. And then, and then being spiritual in your restoration means that you're careful. 
Not just gentle, but careful, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Hear me, being careful in restoration means you won't let yourself get enslaved in the same trap as the person you're trying to rescue. Lifeguards, while they're training, have to be warned about not letting a drowning swimmer cause them to drown as they're attempting to save their life. The same is true of a spiritual restorer. You should be willing to jump into the sinner's world to save their life, but you can't let the sinner pull you down while you're, while you're trying to restore them. You can't drown with them. And let me say this, the ministry of restoration is not just for pastors. This ministry is for every believer, every church member. I, I think most church members, when it comes to spiritual restoration, fall into one or two extremes. Either they're really hesitant to confront a sinning brother or sister because they don't want to appear to be nosy or overstepping their bounds, or they're too eager to confront the sinner and they do it passively, aggressively, or, or, or judgmentally. Watch, both extremes are extremely uncaring. To pawn spiritual restoration off on the pastor all the time because it makes you uncomfortable is uncaring. But to passive aggressively attempt to restore a sinner is uncaring as well. I'm really praying tonight that every church member will see uh, the ministry of spiritual restoration as something they're called to do. Something they're called to do in a considerate, careful, and gentle way. Could you imagine... How much healthier our church would be if its members, not just its pastoral staff, would be sensitive to the spiritual and drift, spiritually drifting members in our congregation. If every time a member would see a bone dislocated in our church, you would take it upon yourself to restore them. The more spiritual restorers we have in this place, the healthier this place will become. It's the first way we care for one another. And that's your job. Do you get that tonight? Please hear me. If someone's not in your connection group for two or three or four weeks in a row, you text them. You call them. Someone doesn't come to church. Or if they do come to church and they're just, they're absolutely isolated. Hear me, church. You notice that. And when you notice it, don't text me. And say, hey, if you notice this person, you might check on them. You check on them. You restore them. There's another way that, that we can care for one another. Look at verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gentle restoration. Now, humble burden bearing. Can I give you a mission for every church member every time you come to God's house? Be alert to the burdens of others and be committed to making them lighter. Be alert to the burdens of others. And be committed to making them lighter. You have got to grasp the first part of that statement. Be alert to the burdens of others. Are you hearing me? That's, you have to be alert to the burdens of others while simultaneously carrying your own. That's hard. Everybody has burdens that's in this room right now. Everybody. You have to learn the discipline of, of bringing your burden with you, but not letting it make you a self-absorbed church member. To where you can't wait for someone to ask you how you're doing so that you can lay it on them. You need to be looking to ask other people how they're doing 
commit to making it lighter. Now, one thing that will hinder this ministry of burden bearing is pride. Look at verse number uh, three. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. What Paul is basically saying, and we're in the context of burden bear, uh, bearing burdens, he says, don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Instead, examine your own life in view of God's evaluation. And when you do, you won't be so prideful. Don't get so puffed up because somebody is sinning in a way you don't or is burdened in a way that you aren't. Paul says, stop feeding your pride by comparing yourself to others. So when you see other people who are burdened, keep yourself from thinking in your mind, oh, they're always that way. If they'll just grow up, they won't deal with that. And that's easy for people. But, but, but listen, just because they're burdened in a different way than you doesn't mean they're less of a Christian. Just because you don't struggle with what they struggle with, they might not struggle with what you struggle with. At the same time, Paul wisely points out the need. Now, this is important to discern the difference between heavy burdens and lighter loads. See, in verse two, he says, bear you one another's burdens. What does he say in verse five? For every man shall bear his own burden. Time out, which one is it? Do we bear other people's burdens or do we bear our own? Yes. It's both. But here's the truth. Some things are too heavy for you to carry on your own. But other things are matters you need to take care of personally. Here's what happens in the church sometimes. Some people treat everything as a heavy burden. When some things are a lighter load. Others treat everything like a lighter load and they refuse to ask for help and they stumble beneath a heavy burden. Here's what I mean. It, it's a church member's personal burden to find a job. But if a church member gets sick and is laid out of work for a long time, he might be in need and that might be a burden he needs help bearing. It's a single mom's burden to steward her money and time and energy wisely. But when two out of three kids get COVID and she gets it herself, that's a burden she needs help bearing. Maybe what Paul is getting at is how uncaring it is to have a spirit of entitlement with your church to help you bear burdens that you should be bearing on your own. While at the same time, it's uncaring of the church. To see somebody staggering in life with a burden, obviously too heavy for them to carry, but yet treated as a burden they should be able to carry themselves. Let me say this also. Sometimes it's not that those in your church or, or even your pastor are willfully choosing to not help you bear a burden. Can I get real practical? Sometimes we don't know about it. So if you discern that a burden you're bearing is too heavy to carry alone, please make sure you let somebody know. Part of being in biblical community means that we communicate with others. It involves us being humble and transparent enough to express to others our burdens. Hey, don't be so independent that, that you're embarrassed to reach out for help if you really need it. But be determined that at the same time, you're not going to be an overly needy person. That you ask God to give you strength to carry the burdens that you should manage with his help. This needs to be said as well. 
Bearing the burdens of church members is not just the pastor's responsibility. Member care is the ministry of every member, especially in a church our size. In a healthy church, watch, church members realize that pastors are not the only ones that really can care for them. So if a church member visits you in the hospital, you shouldn't be disappointed that it wasn't the pastor. You should see this member as doing Galatians 6 ministry and be thankful for it. Paul shifts gears a bit in verse 6. Look at it. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. You're doing a good job listening. Thank you. Here's the third way we can care for one another. Generous sharing. Gentle restoration, humble burden bearing, generous sharing. Paul is talking. I want you to really study with me here. He's talking specifically about being generous to share all good things, he says, with the one who teaches us. Here's what he's saying. I mean, like directly what he's saying can apply in many ways. But here's what he's directly saying to support the one who teaches or preaches the word. And to do it materially. This would include whatever good things are appropriate for the teachers or preachers welfare. Tim Keller says it this way. We should not be. <clears throat> we should not be consumers who come to a church to plunder the benefits of it without doing significant giving to that church. Lest you think that Paul is being selfishly motivated with these believers saying, pay me because I teach the word or pay all your preachers because they, they preach the word. You need to understand his motive here. His ultimate concern is not money. It's the furtherance of the gospel. He knows that the God ordained means for accomplishing the furtherance of the gospel is the steady proclamation of God's word by faithful preachers. Think about it. These teachers would be limited if they themselves had to take care of their daily necessities through being bivocational. And so by caring for the needs of the teacher or the preacher, a, a church is saying this. We want the word of God taught as faithfully and as effectively as possible. So we will support you. Caring well means that we generously care for those who teach. And that we don't do it because it's merely a tradition. We do it because we love the word of God. And we want to see the word of God spread to the ends of the earth. We've sent out three ministry interns. Two have planted a church. One is currently revitalizing a church. My dad and our deacons had a philosophy that, that I gladly let carry over into my, my pastorate. It's when we sent out those three guys we made sure that, that we had enough financial margin in our missions to pay them good enough to where they did not have to get a job on the side. That was the philosophy. The philosophy is based right here. We're going to communicate in all good things if we can, and we could. And some churches can't, and we understand that. But we could, so we did. And we are taking good care of Mike so, 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 so as Mike is trying to rebuild this church and revitalize this church and restructure this church and bring this church back to life, that is not easy, folks. And if he was working 40 plus hours outside of the church building and most of his time was spent on Saturday, Sunday and Wednesday nights, listen, he would really struggle. 
I want, I want to be real, real um, upfront and transparent with the church. I think this is right to do every once in a while. And I don't know if, if this has ever been done, but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell you how we go about pastoral compensation at our church. This church has historically been generous to its pastor. I'm thankful for that. I, in turn, attempt to be fair and generous with our pastoral staff. I want you to know as a church that, that we are practicing Galatians 6, verse 6, very well. Because we're intentional about it and we're fair about it. There's one deacon, it's Mike Dominguez, who's in charge of pastoral care. Mike checks with me formally twice a year to make sure that, that Jenny and I are taken care of. During one of those meetings, it's the one at the end of the year, he'll come prepared to talk to me about my annual salary. And he and, and our financial administrator, Farron Lynch, will use, before that meeting, we'll use a professional database that we pay for. I don't do it, they do it. It's ran by one of the top ministry compensation guides in all the country. And, and what those guys will do is they'll plug in our, our bottom line offering numbers to that, 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 that database. They'll, they'll turn in our bottom line attendance numbers. They'll, they'll turn in our zip code so that company can research the average median income of our county that particular year as well as the cost of living in our county. And, and, and this company will then do a wide search of counties and, and churches that are comparative to Seward County and Fellowship Baptist Church by offering numbers and attendance and, and cost of living and things like that. Then they will, they, will, they will shoot out three numbers for a pastor's salary of a church like ours based on their research. They will give a low-end average, a median average, and a high average because our, our church provides incredibly generous benefit package, which is mainly non-taxable. Uh, the guys feel good about aiming for the median average salary. And, and, and that's how my salary is determined. It's objective. It's, there's not a lot of guessing going on. I don't make it. Uh, there's not a lot of personal opinion on what people think the pastor should get paid. It's based on objective data that is fair to both the pastor and the church. I just want to be, I just want to be up front with you how we do that. It's, your, it's the money you give generously. There's nothing for me to hide about that. I want you to know that, that Mike Dominguez doesn't just go to say, man, I wonder how much he should get paid. Rick and Bill and Doug and Monty and, and Kent, they don't just get together in a meeting and say, I think we ought to pay him this. We don't just shoot blind like that. That's too subjective. This is God's people's money. And, and so we research and leave the subjectivity out of that. Does that make sense? And, and then they, they can be subjective in, in maybe a, a, a raise or whatever. And they've been very generous with those kind of things, bonuses, things like that. Well, we do the same thing with the pastoral staff as well as well as Brother uh, Knutson. We, we turn in their ministry position to that company. We run it through the database and, and, and they suggest the average median income of the facilities manager of a church our size, a school administrator of a school or church our size. A music director, a youth pastor, an associate pastor, a children's, they have every position you can think of. And this really helps me to know I'm being fair with what our staff deserves to get paid. Let him that is taught in the word communicate, give unto him that teacheth in all good things. One of our trustees, Potsy, seems to always remind us when we're making a decision about compensation, especially. He always seems to remind the trustee guys 
that God has always blessed generosity. So why would we stop right now? Not irresponsibility, generosity. And there's a difference. I want to say, if you've ever worried about it, this church takes incredible care of its pastor and pastoral staff. And we intend to continue to do that. And I want to say thank you. Thank you to the deacons. Thank you to the trustees. Thank you for the church that has bought into that. If you should ever have a question, you see a staff member buy a house, buy a new car, see me get a new car. You ever have a question? I I would just come ask me about it. Does that make sense? I mean, I I do hear indirectly. I have in the last year and a half. I've heard indirectly some comments. And it'd be fair if you just say, hey, what's going on with that? Are are they making you rich over here? Because I need to go to a church where they make the pastor poor. I promise you we're not being irresponsible, just trying to, trying to take care of people the best way that we can do it. And that's, that's fair. I think that's fair to talk about at church. One more practical way that you can care for one another in the church. Look at verse 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's the principle, Potsy, right there. You're going to sow generosity, you're going to reap generosity. Verse 8, for he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the flesh, shall the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the spirit shall the spirit reap life everlasting. You may be thinking, what does that have to do with caring for one another? I'll say it, then I'll explain it. Here's the last way we care for one another, through personal holiness. Watch here. Our personal lives, if, if please tune in, our personal lives impact our relational lives. Therefore, one of the most important ways that you can contribute to the health of your local church is by practicing spirit-filled godliness. Okay, listen, when I seek to put sin to death in my life, it will inevitably bless others. When I'm indulging in sin, it will inevitably impact others in a negative way. We never sin in isolation and we never do good in isolation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. In that book are two chapters that stand side by side. One chapter is called The Day Alone. The other chapter is called The Day Together. Here's what he says. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who's not in community beware of being alone. In other words, your time alone affects your time together. What you do personally will affect how you interact corporately. He says it this way. The day together will be unfruitful without the day alone both for the fellowship and for the individual. This is what Paul is getting at here. If in your private walk with Christ, you are sowing to the flesh, it'll affect your desire and ability to care for others at church. If you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. A flesh-filled church member will not reap spirit-filled fruit. A carnal Christian will not be a very caring Christian. But if you're sowing in the spirit, walking in personal holiness, you'll find that fulfilling the fruits of the spirit at church will come naturally. Gently restoring a brother is a fruit of the spirit. Bearing one another's burdens is a fruit of the spirit. Generous giving so that the word can go forth is a fruit of the spirit. Pursuing personal holiness is what makes those kind of things possible. Listen. Being a caring church member is not something that you will do because you heard my message tonight and you thought to yourself, I need to be better at that. 
It's not because you're hearing a three-point message or a four-point message of how to be more caring in your church. You're going to say, you know what? On Wednesday, I'm going to come back and be a more caring person. That's manufactured fruit. You've got to sow seeds of the Spirit when you're outside of this place so that when you come inside of this place, the fruit of caring will just fall off the tree. If you're walking in the flesh outside a church, but expecting to walk in the Spirit inside of the church, you got another thing coming. That would be as silly as you going out here to one of our little trees. When are the little trees going to grow, by the way? Can some tree expert help me out right there? It's been like 12 years since we bought those things. Anyway, no, it's been a couple. But anyway, um, what was I saying? You could go out to the little tree with an apple in one hand and duct tape in the other. And you could duct tape an apple to one of those little trees and say, it's an apple tree. I just planted me an apple tree. No, you didn't. That apple's going to fall off when it rains. Unless it's gorilla tape, it'll stay on a little bit longer. <laughs> hear me, hear me. You can't come into this place and start taping on the fruit of the Spirit to your life. The first, watch, watch, the first time you're bumped, it's going to fall off. It's got to be in here. Where do you do that? You do that at home. You do that when you're driving in the car. You do that when you're at work. You pursue private, personal holiness. You sow seeds of the Spirit so that fruits of the Spirit begin to come out right here at church. Now watch me, watch me. The reason why, reason why we struggle with interpersonal relationships at church is because we're walking in the flesh when we're not here. We are fleshly people. It's because we're not praying. We're not reading our Bible. We're not privately worshiping God. We're not fasting. We're not doing that. And so when you come and you're around all these sinners three times a week and they bump into you with their flesh, what's going to come out? Whatever is on the inside. I'm urging you. If this was the only message I preached, it would be sufficient. Because if you want to be a healthy church, you got to be a healthy Christian. Please stay healthy. Because when you're unhealthy, you contribute to making this place unhealthy. When your pastor's unhealthy, I contribute to making this place unhealthy. We all owe it to each other, do we not? Do we not? We owe it to each other. To pray every day. Read our Bible every day. Commune with God every day. Sow seeds of the Spirit every day. We owe that to each other, church. Paul says, look for opportunities to do good. To care for those in the church. You do that through gentle restoration, humble burden bearing, and generous sharing. But I want you to notice one more verse in our text and it's our conclusion tonight. And let us not be weary well doing. Remember how we started? Do good. Do good. But Paul says be, be cautious because doing good is tiring. Care. Look for opportunities. Be alert. Don't be inward focused. Don't come and, and, and just splash all your stress on everybody when you go worship with them. That's tiring. It's tiring to kind of discipline our disposition like that. 
Hey, come to church and smile. Smile, smiling's hard when you don't feel like it. Come to church and forgive. Forgive. But you do that three or four times, it'll start getting old. Hey, generously tithe. Generously give so that the word can keep going out in an effective way. Last time I checked, the bills don't stop coming in. When finances aren't good, it gets really weary. Clicking on that, that little button to give on the online giving or dropping that offering envelope in, in the play. It just gets, it gets tiring doing good. And Paul says, don't get tired. Don't faint. Don't give up. Why? Because then you forfeit seeing the reward of caring for people. It is so neat. It's so neat to watch God use you, put a dislocated bone back into place. God used me to chase down somebody in my flock, my congregation, who were, they were wayward and they were drifting. And I was really nervous about talking to them. I didn't know if they'd get defensive or, or if they'd make stuff up and lie to me or if they would, I didn't even know if they would text me back. But man, when I gently and carefully reached out to them and then I reached out to them again and I reached out to them again and I, I, I wasn't weary, I didn't faint, I didn't give up. It was amazing when I finally saw them come back to church. You quit, you don't get to see that. Right? It, it, it's so tiring burden people, bearing people's burdens. Isn't it, Ashley? Whenever we have a hard day at work on Wednesday, and then you got to come to church on Wednesday, and you got to go upstairs in the impact room, and you got to bear the burdens of these young ladies. Sometimes that's the last thing you want to do because of the students you've been dealing with all day long. Be not weary in well doing. Why? Because you never know what Wednesday night one of these ladies is going to need you the most. And if you quit too early, you might not get to pick the fruit. You with me? Well, I've tried to encourage them five times and they still aren't coming. Be not weary in well-doing. Be not weary. Don't quit, church. Then you forfeit. You forfeit the opportunity to see what it feels like when you're a healthy church member. A caring church member. We fought through distractions tonight, fatigue and all of that. You've listened well. Stand to your feet. Let's respond to the Lord tonight. God, we love you.